Hello, welcome back, and thank you again for listening to the History of the Congo. Episode 4, The Kingdom of the Congo, at its best and at its worst. Last time, we left King Afonso in the first half of the 16th century, watching in despair as gangs indiscriminately sold his subjects to slave traders. Initially, this was less of a problem for the king, as the slaves had been captured in military conquest, predominantly in the campaigns against the Angola people in the south. But as wars declined and slave traders got used to their newfound wealth, things took a much darker turn. Freeborn Congolese, or Genta, were being kidnapped, and people were taken indiscriminately, including the children of noble families. This was outside of the norms for the kingdom, and some of these kidnappings are attributed to the Portuguese slave traders themselves, who took people off the streets and even out of their huts. Civilised pleas to the Portuguese king and to the Pope were not answered, or deliberately withheld, and the kingdom had to act to forestall this. The main issue was that with the inability of the king to protect his peoples, tensions in the Commonwealth started to fracture the old agreements. King Afonso had to act, and in 1526 the administration of the slave trade was changed, prohibiting illegal slavery. This allowed slavery to continue, but not of the freeborn people. Whilst offering no remedy for those already in chains, this did have some effect, and the kingdom, although still losing people captured in wars, was stabilised. By this time the capital, Mbanza Congo, was a significant city. It was the base of the Portuguese in the area, and importantly was the base of Catholicism. Its contrasting dark heart, however, was its location as the hub of the slave trade. Slaves were brought along the river Congo to Malebi Pool, through Mbanza, and onto the coast. Malebi Pool was a broad and slow-flowing stretch of the river, at the western edge of the central plateau. It was the link between the central African heartland and the western Atlantic, and it was starting to grow. Eventually, this location would drive settlement here from a king not yet mentioned, and it would grow to become today's capital, Kinshasa. Sixteen years after the abolition of slavery, in 1542, King Afonso died, leaving a relatively stable kingdom behind. He had halted the flow of illegal capture, but where he failed miserably was succession planning. As soon as his established legitimacy was removed, rivals saw their chance for power. Internal tensions from these factions rose. Multiple struggles of succession took place, and internal alliances, not necessarily aligned to the central kingdom, were formed. Popular uprising grew on a virulent scale, and the kingdom's ability to stand up for itself in the face of external pressure was diminishing. This allowed others to take advantage of the weakened situation. These others were not just the new arrivals from Europe, but also much older African rivals. One such people were the Nyaga people of the Lunda Empire. The Lunda Empire is one of the great empires which grew in the lands of today's DRC. It was a merchant empire based at the heart of the southern savannah, stretching across the south-central part of today's DRC to the east at Kindu, and across today's northern Angola. It grew on the basis of a governmental system adopted from its neighbour Luba Empire, and through their network of trade routes, they were well aware of the events on the coast. They knew of the opportunities to make money through the slave trade as it grew in the mid-16th century. We shall meet the Lunda more in the next few episodes, but for now we will come back to the West. 
semi-nomadic lunder hunters and salt prospectors, known as the Imbangala, or famously the Nyaga people, entered the southern part of the Kingdom of the Congo and joined armed bands in collecting people for sale to the slave traders. By 1568, this had escalated to a large-scale conflict. Two years later, during the reign of King Alvaro I, the Lunda invaded, in what is called the Yaga invasion. This was disastrous for the Congo Kingdom. The Yaga people succeeded in pushing north all the way to Mbanza Congo. This they eventually captured, and looting and pillaging was to such an extent that people had to resort to selling whatever they could to survive. Fathers would sell their sons, and brothers would sell brothers as a means of survival. Speculation suggests that this disruption had an adverse effect on Portuguese trade, which relied on their position of power. In 1570, the Portuguese and the Kingdom of the Congo entered an alliance, which through military conflict repelled the Yaga after some two years of occupation. This alliance was not on equal terms, though. Leveraging the kingdom's reliance on Portuguese support, a hard bargain was driven. King Alvaro I conceded a Portuguese settlement in Luanda, now the Angolan capital. Portuguese power was now established. As soon as the conflict subsided, slavery once again picked up, leaving the king enraged at the sheer numbers of people shipped into slavery. The complexity of the situation will not be lost on the listener. King Alvaro of the Kingdom of the Congo had to grant a new colony to the main slave traders in the south of his kingdom in order to repel a rival African kingdom from his land. These rivals were selling his people in their thousands to the same people that he had formed an alliance with. In response to his moral rage, King Alvaro sent an emissary to Sao Tome, the island off the western coast which was the main slave market. Here he was able to ransom back some of the people sold and captured at this time. One can only imagine the glee which accompanied these people's return to their homeland. People settled back and nobles re-entered the administration of the kingdom in the capital, now renamed San Salvador. It shows that when the authority of the king was strong, he had the ability to protect his people. King Alvaro remained on the throne until his death in 1587 and there was relative stability for 35 years in the kingdom. But during this time, two important events occurred. The Dutch arrived, and the Portuguese grew stronger and stronger, especially in the south. Initially, i.e. before they had colonies of their own requiring manpower, the Dutch were really only interested in trade, and by trade we mean ivory. This meant a separate revenue source for the Kingdom of the Congo, and a rival power which could be allied or fought with a level of weaponry similar to the Portuguese. There's an interesting development to the south of the kingdom, and whilst only loosely connected to the Congo Kingdom and today's DRC, as it sits in Angola, I hope you'll forgive a small geographical digression beyond the borders. The Portuguese, or Spanish at the time, united as they were under the Habsburgs, had started to flex their muscles. The southern merchants started the only war in the western Congo with the help of allied local troops, where people were captured rather than bought by local slave gangs. As you can imagine, this was not well received, and famously Queen Nzinga of the Ngoga people fought a 30 years war with them after some shrewd negotiations turned sour. This was a guerrilla warfare campaign with the Portuguese, and the Ngoga maintained a base in the Manu, or Bush, 
in which her troops could live and retreat to. I would like to talk more about this, but given it's outside of my self-imposed DLC focus, I will leave it there. But look her up. It's fascinating. She was a woman in a man's world and fought the Portuguese and their allies, including the use of the Dutch Navy as her own ally, and she survived into her 80s. There's a film of her made by the Angolan film industry. If you're really keen, look at the clips online. At least it gives some dramatic entertainment. She is destined to be a hero of the Angolans and their empathisers for some time. With the Portuguese weakened by this conflict, and the Kingdom of the Congo strengthened from years of stability, it was time to negotiate a peace treaty. In 1622, the Kingdom of the Congo was in discussions with the then Portuguese governor, D'Souza, to this aim. Emboldened by their weaponry, however, D'Souza double-crossed the kingdom, and with the Mbalba people in support, he attacked from the south. Now under King Pedro, the United Kingdom of the Congo was too strong, and in 1623 the southern coalition was driven back. King Pedro was so enraged by the double-cross that he wrote letters to the Spanish king, the Pope, and the Stadtholder of the Netherlands. The Portuguese governor had clearly gone rogue, and he was immediately recalled back, although he died on the voyage home. As further recompense, 1,500 slaves who had been taken across the Atlantic to Brazil were returned. Hard as it is to imagine now, the Kingdom of the Congo was an important state operating on the international stage, and it was not to be trodden on. The Kingdom was also proactive in diplomacy, and in 1642 the Kingdom had emissaries in Holland, Brazil and the Vatican, and as you have seen above, was able to work in opposition to the slave merchants. As with all states, it used these relations to its advantage wherever possible. In the 1640s, the new Congo king Garcia I sided with the Dutch against Portugal and Angola, and the kingdom was able to reconquer some of its former lands to the south. This was the ultimate realisation of a plan from 20 years earlier when, just after pushing the aggressive governor back to Angola, the Congo was trying to secure a Dutch naval assault of five ships and 500 men from the coast, supported by the Kingdom of the Congo land forces. This probably underlines the efforts to appease the kingdom and the recall of the Portuguese governor as the kingdom was able to form alliances with other nation-states in the middle of the 17th century. This appeasement only delayed the Congo invasion, though, and in the 1640s Luanda was retaken after it had been granted to the Portuguese some 70 years earlier. It is a measure of global awareness and its embedded Catholicism that as part of the treaty with the Protestant Dutch, the Congo king had deliberated whether this alliance would cause the Congo to become embroiled in the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was the Protestant and Catholic War of the 17th century in which nearly 8 million people died in Western Europe, mainly in the Holy Roman Empire. This war represented one of the highest percentage casualty rates of all time, where up to 50% of the population died. It's clear that here in Africa, however, local geopolitics surpassed religious unanimity and the coalition held despite the religious differences. It's not as if the Pope had supported them in times of trouble earlier. Bubbling under the strong kingdom, however, internal rivalries still simmered. Rivals were looking for an opportune moment to seize more power. A rival and wealthy city, Mbanza Soyo, was developing about two-thirds of the way west towards the coast from San Salvador and here separatist rebellion was openly being discussed. Although for the present, such strong views were only held by a vocal minority. 
Things were essentially stable under a strong kingdom, and the Soyo people continued to support the kingdom of the Congo as a loyal chieftain. For now, the main threat to the kingdom of the Congo was the Portuguese to the south. They were still simmering with rage at their earlier defeat. Their thirst to expand was unabated, and conflict in the south continued, and in 1648 they eventually expelled the Dutch from the region. This was around the time a new aggressive king, King Antonio I, was crowned in the kingdom of the Congo. He was looking to exploit their split between the Portuguese and the Spanish, the Portuguese having gained as yet unrecognised independence from Spain in 1640. This came to a head in 1665, when one of the small kingdoms between the two powers, Mbwila, endured a civil war. Either side employed either the Portuguese or the Kingdom of the Congo for help, and both powers saw their opportunity for expansion and responded with force. What followed was a key event in the kingdom's history, the Battle of Mbwila. The Kingdom of the Congo advanced with approximately 15,000 archers, 5,000 infantry armed with shields and swords, and a musket regiment of 380 men, including some Portuguese mercenaries. They faced a Portuguese army of 450 musketeers, two light artillery guns, and 14,000 infantry, who were composed of Native Americans from Brazil, as well as African allies. It was truly a multinational battlefield in Central Africa some 380 years ago. The two sides fronted up to each other in a valley, and the Portuguese set up their musketeers in the centre, supported by the two cannons, with the Africans and Brazilians on the hills. Further African infantry were held in reserve. King Antonio decided to go on the offensive, and his forces charged directly with archer support on the flanks. Initially, his archers overwhelmed Portuguese and their allies on the hills, after which they launched a direct attack on the core musketry force in the centre. They very nearly swept the force aside, but in the last charge King Antonio was hit and killed. At this loss, the Congolese forces went into disarray. Without their leader, the kingdom's army was routed. Lacking the conviction and direction to fight, they turned and fled. Despite the valiant rearguard action of the Duke of Bengo, the kingdom suffered a heavy defeat. In addition to the king, 5,000 Congolese troops, most of the court nobles, and the San Salvador royal chaplain were killed. It is a measure of respect for the king and the kingdom that the king was buried in the chapel of Our Lady of Nazareth, in the Bay of Luanda which was dedicated to the battle. With the kingdom defeated and leaderless, the Portuguese were determined to stabilise their presence in the region and continued to press northwards. Only 13 years after the Congo-Dutch victory, the Portuguese were able to take back the island of Luanda. There they would remain in control until final Angolan independence in the form of present-day Angola in 1975. Not only did this mean the firm establishment of an acrimonious rival to the south, but the reconquest also meant that the carry shells, still used as currency throughout the kingdom and Central Africa, were no longer available. In a double blow, the leadership and the economic base of the kingdom was over. Alfonso's death created a power vacuum. The Soyo separatists seized their opportunity, which led to a protracted civil war. This came to a head in 1670, and the Kingdom of the Congo resorted to a treaty with the Portuguese, now its allies again, with a view to defeating the Soyo separatists once and for all. 
Together with the Portuguese, the kingdom invaded the Soyo province, to the west of the kingdom's capital. The strength of the Soyo, however, was dramatically underestimated. They were able to field an army of 20 to 25,000, which defeated the attack. Aggrieved at this, the defenders did not stop after their victory, and the Soyo continued west to San Salvador. The capital of the kingdom was sacked to a degree far extending the occupation of the short-lived Jagger. The population either fled at the advancing Soyo, or were pillaged to such an extent that they could not find a way to survive. There was no way for the inhabitants to survive this disruption and a crisis at this level, and after 280 years as a seat of power, the capital was abandoned. From this chaos, two notable factions emerged, the Kimpanzu and the Kinlaza. At the 10,000-foot level of this podcast's history, there is little discernible difference between the two factions. It really came down to who controlled the resources. These parties continued to fight for the next 150 years, and the people continued to suffer. But of course the people did not suffer in silence. A marriage of humanity and religious hope and adversity led to the evolution of a lady now dubbed the Mother of the African Revolution. Her name was Donna Beatrice, or Kempervita. Kempervita was born in 1684 as a royal who was baptised in the Roman Catholic faith, but her African traditional beliefs remained strong. Although Catholicism was now embedded in the royal family for almost two centuries, it was combined with a respect for the ancestors and established shamanic beliefs. She was trained as a shaman, followed Christian scripture, and longed for the regained power of the Kingdom of the Congo. At the age of 18, in 1702, she had a near-death experience and recovered, believing herself to be the manifestation of Saint Anthony, the patron saint of Portugal. She preached that the Kingdom of the Congo was the Holy Land, and that Mbanza Congo, now called San Salvador, was the biblical Bethlehem. Importantly, and most alarmingly for the Capuchin missionaries, she spoke that Jesus Christ and other saints were black Africans, and that whilst the European Church was not beneficial for Africans, heaven was also for the Africans. In the oppression and fear that existed in the failed kingdom, these were powerful messages of hope. Village after village embraced her thoughts, and Antonianism was born. South Salvador was resettled, and to the alarm of the Portuguese, even nobles were started to move back. There was a further discontent and ambition that had been rekindled among the people. She fought against the civil wars that were weakening the kingdom, and against slavery, which was the main benefactor of the turmoil. She had some success, but as you know, this was insufficient to stem the tide of oppression. She was approached by one of King Pedro IV's generals as an ally based against the king, and just like that, the king decided she represented too great a threat to his own power base. She was condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake in 1706, under the watchful eye of the missionaries. The scorpion had bitten the crocodile. Her legacy continued until 1709 when San Salvador was taken by the king, but her legacy was longer lasting. Her message of African Christianity was now out of the bag and was reborn in the Congo over 200 years later. This was in the time of another great oppression and it was led by Simon Kimbangu. Her ideas even spread with the people taken overseas. They were seen as pivotal to the 1739 Stono slave rebellion in South Carolina and in the Haitian Revolution, and they remain with us today. 
San Salvador was re-established as a holy city and the capital once more. But despite the short period of hope, internal conflict and the weakening of the kingdom continued. Pitch battles did occur, and in 1763 the Kinzala faction was victorious after a battle involving 30,000 soldiers, although they were only to hold power for a short while, as the Kimbanzu and other factions, notably the short-lived Kivuzu, regrouped and regrew. The anarchy meant that the kingdom had lost power over its land and the ability to protect its people. With perpetual infighting and the willingness of the victors in these battles to sell the conquered peoples, the slave traders were able to take advantage. There was no organised opposition such as they had faced in the past. The sale of slaves from the Congo region rose to horrific levels. The protection of the strong kings of history was gone, and the amount of people sold to slavery rose to the highest numbers in history. 215 years later, in 1865, the last slave ship left the Congo bound for Cuba with a cargo obtained by Congo brokers. Until then, the wider Congo area, including those from inland, lost 4 million people, representing the departure of just under 40% of all slaves transported across the Atlantic. This equates to 186,000 people each decade, or over 18,000 people per year. If the moral strength of the Kingdom of the Congo had remained as a united Commonwealth, I like to think of a robust Central African Kingdom preventing this, as it had done in the past. But sadly, this was not the case. This is not a slavery history podcast. This is an understandably huge and important topic, and in deference I know that there are far, far better than me to tell these stories, often with recounts of personal histories. I would not in any way want to make any delusions that I could speak to them. But without talking of slavery, it would be impossible to provide a comprehensive history of the Congo. With the breakdown in the social fabric that slavery caused, there was no way the region could keep pace with global development. The social impact on people remaining was immeasurable. Most in demand as slaves were adult males. This meant that the population was able to sustain itself, enabling the continuation of the ghastly trade. But it also meant a hard life with little space of progress for the women left behind. These women not only had to fulfil the traditional Congolese tasks of women in the village, but they also had to perform the traditional men's roles, such as ploughing the fields and constructing the houses. It was a tragic period in history, and the suffering for those sold and those remaining remains incalculable. Despite a lag of 16 years, as mentioned above, in 1839 slavery, at least by name and as part of transatlantic trade, was starting to come to an end. The British Empire, now a global superpower, had banned all slavery and had sent the Royal Navy to patrol the West Coast to ensure slave ships could no longer cross. The large settlements of central trade reduced in importance and merchants relying on the slave trade for income searched for a new source of wealth. Here the suffering was passed on to Congo's fauna and elephants became the new resource to be taken as their tusks, sold as ivory, grew in value on the international market to Europe, America and to the Far East. Hunting for ivory required less centralisation and the larger population hubs declined in power as people dispersed once again to the forests and savannah to seek ivory across a wider area. As this happened, the Kingdom of the Congo was reduced further from a centralised state to a collection of small decentralised trading villages. It was in this state that the once strong and united Kingdom of the Congo was eventually split 
in a meeting in which no African, let alone Congolese, was present. The South, including San Salvador, passed to the Portuguese colony of Angola. The North suffered a different fate. This section, including the western reaches of the River Congo and Malabi Pool, passed to one man. He was from a tribe which had hitherto played no part in the region's history. We shall meet this man and explore how this came to be in later episodes. Peculiarly, he was from a state only 30 years old at the time, although this state became forever entwined in the Congo history. He was from, as you would have guessed, Belgium. So again, we leave the Congolese under the powers of outsiders. Next podcast, we will travel back in time and look to the east to see the peoples of the lands living at the source of the river rather than the end. We meet a tribe that developed a system of African government that was so effective it lasted for hundreds of years and shared this system across most of central southern Africa. We are now set up for the eastern part of the journey. I for one am excited, so until next time, thanks for listening and safe travels.